A reading from the book of Romans. For if we have been united in a death like Christ's, we will certainly be so in the resurrection. This we know, that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. The woman or man who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die. Death no longer has dominion over him. For dying, he died once to sin. In living, he lives to God. So also should you consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm your lead pastor here at Zhao MKE Church. And um, I just want to give a little context. I am, for the first time in my life, having like a really bad allergy season. I don't know if I'm alone here, but that sound, yeah. Yeah, all right. Allergy team, unite. I see Dave's fist up in the back. Um, so that is the sound in my throat. I may need um, a drink of water here uh, at some point. Um, but I know that a lot of us are having complicated days. Um, did y'all know, did anyone in advertising tell you lately that it's Mother's Day? It is Mother's Day, and happy Mother's Day to each and everyone here who feels really good and connected to that day. Um, I, I like to think of Mother's Day as celebrating the way that women contribute to families in any number of ways, chosen and uh, bio. Um, I just want to shout out to those of you who have complicated feelings related to Mother's Day, that I see you, you are appreciated, you are held here in this community. Um, we can both celebrate women and mothers and grieve some of the wounds we have uh, in our families and lives at the same time. And it is really hard for us to hold those kinds of paradoxes. Um, it's, it seems impossible for our culture to hold that paradox, right? But, but we as a body are trained, those who are in the kingdom already and longing for it because it is not yet, those who are um, dead to sin and alive in Christ, we know a good paradox uh, when we see one. And so I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day and I want to grieve with you if you are grieving this Mother's Day. Uh, and know that there's room in the kingdom for the full complexity of our relationships, of our love, and the healing of our wounds. And so let's move on to something easier and light. Paul's take on death in Christ, or death to sin. <laughs> death to sin. Um, united in death. This is, you know, who here has a good association with Paul in the scriptures? Like, we've all got good Pauls. I see Pauls. There are good Pauls. But how about Paul from the Bible? Pro, con, show of hands. All right. All right. For those of you who don't have a strong enough opinion to vote, no worries. 
Uh, no worries. <laughs> For those of you who, uh, who have your thumbs down, I totally hear you. I get you. There is a tradition in the American Evangelical Church that elevates Paul, sometimes sort of to the detriment of elevating Jesus, which seems a little wrong in, in a tradition that's ostensibly worshiping Jesus. But we also, uh, we also have a complicated picture of Paul, in part because the way the radical, and I mean this in the best possible way, the radical language that Paul uses has been co-opted by empire for the forces of death. Empire is sneaky. Empire is deceitful. Empire takes good and beautiful holy things, twists them, turns them on their head, and makes them ugly and destructive. And Paul and Jesus both engage with empire with the same level of cunning, right? That uh, being wise as serpents, along with being as gentle as doves. But Paul's clever words here about death have been turned into something that actually serves death by much of the American church. This idea that we should be united in death, uh, in a death like Christ's, which is, is notable and we'll come back to it, that our body of sin is destroyed and that we find freedom in death. These are actually really radical ideas, but they have been turned into really a worship of death in much of the American church. Now you may notice that Zhao is the name of this church. Zhao, um, if you aren't aware yet, uh, Zhao is a Greek word and it's from the scriptures and it means to be among the living. That was really intentional and part of the intention behind it was to consciously orient this community towards life towards resurrection, towards understanding the eternal life that we find in God, in Jesus, in the kingdom, in liberation, that, that is eternal, that goes on forever, but begins here and now. Because, I don't know about y'all, but some of the churches that I've been to seem to be so concerned with what happens after we die that, that it ends up becoming just sort of a waiting game, right? Like, Forget this earth, forget this life, it's not for me. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting to be with my creator. I'm just waiting to get to heaven. But how tragic, how tragic when, when Jesus tells us our God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. When Jesus demonstrates with his life and teachings what it means to be fully alive here and now. That eternal life, a gift to us from God, starts here and now. And that we are not to wait for it. That we are not trying to receive it after we die. That this world, this earth, is not to be rejected, dismissed, or forgotten. But that this is part of God's good creation. And our life, our eternal life, begins here and now. And so, the church has taken, church has taken Paul's words about death. And, and interpreted them to say like, Basically, don't worry about what happens to you here and now. Don't worry about it. You'll get your reward in heaven. You just got to get by. You just got to wait it out. You'll meet your maker then, right? But that is contrary not only to the teachings of Jesus, but to, to the teachings of Paul as well. Last week, we talked a little bit about how Jesus talks about death and life. Jesus talks about death as kind of an internal death, 
a soul death. Y'all are dead inside, he said to a lot of his detractors in some way, shape, or form. My paraphrase. Y'all are dead inside. You could be alive. You could be fully among the living. You could be repairing your relationships. You could be building the kingdom. You could be experiencing the depth of love from which you were born. Not only in the end, but now. Right here, right now. Come alive. Wake up. Come alive like I am alive. And have that eternal life that is not confined to a finite human life that is certainly not defined by the mechanisms of power and oppression. Because we know that the empire lies about what life is. The empire lies about what life is. Our culture tells us how to get life, right? Get paid, and then look out for yourself. Our culture tells us how to get life. Be like everybody else. Don't cause a ruckus. Don't stand out. Don't be different. And if you are, you can't actually have life. You can have approximation of life. So settle for survival. Get the closest thing you can to privilege. And forget anybody else who has it off worse than you. That's the playbook, right? That's the playbook we've been given to life under the threat of empire and oppression. But what Paul emphasizes here is that the ways of empire are death, right? That is the true death, the death Jesus is talking about, that soul death. Paul is saying there are things, Jesus is saying there are things, I am saying there are things that are worse than the death of your body. There is a death that you can walk through every day of your life if you are just surviving. And here, Paul is talking about what it means to do more than survive. What it means, I would say, to be liberated. What it means to be saved. Now again, salvation in our modern American Christian context has been twisted to mean salvation is the ticket that you present at the pearly gates so you can get your mansion, right? But that is not what salvation means to Paul and not what salvation means to Paul in Romans. Scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan write this in their book, The First Paul. In Christian context today, the most common meaning of salvation is primarily about an afterlife, how one is saved in order to go to heaven. But this is not what that term meant for Paul. Yes, Paul believed in an afterlife, but for Paul, salvation, being saved, was primarily about life before death. It was already happening in this life, this side of death. And they go on to describe a Paul who is committed to that life Jesus describes, the eternal life that begins here and now with radical love. The eternal life which begins here and now in the radical love that brought us into being that so deeply threatens systems of power and domination. And this is where we get back to that first little phrase from the reading today. We have been united in a death like Christ's. Now, how did Christ die? On the cross. And, and Borg and Crossan say that for Paul, 
The cross reveals the character of empire, the path of personal transformation, and the character of God. Now I'm hearing some of y'all put two and two together when, when I begin just by saying the cross reveals the character of empire, right? What does the cross reveal about the character of empire? This is a real question. Brutality, fear, violence, domination, oppression, control, compliance, hegemony, dictatorship, cruel. Yeah, these are the elements of the cross. Public execution by the state for one who, who spoke out in dissent, one who led a people in a revolution of love, one who would not be satisfied by the structures and hierarchies of power and access, but wanted access and power for all, wanted provision and love for all, wanted healing and connection and community for all. All of these things are deeply threatening to empire. And so what do they do? According to that violent, cruel, dictatorial character of empire, they squash it, they kill it, they crucify it. They crucified Jesus publicly, publicly so as to dissuade anyone else from following in his footsteps. The cross reveals the character of the empire. But for Paul, the cross and the resurrection are intimately linked. And so, how do the cross and resurrection reveal the character of God? Well, God cannot be squashed. God is not interested in compliance. God will not be contained, not even by these systems of immense and unbelievable power. The Roman Empire thinks it's bigger than God, can put God in chains, can beat God, can kill God. Well, the Roman Empire is wrong, as is every other empire fashioned in its image. And so, if the cross, if our being united in the death that Jesus had, a death like Christ on the cross, that makes us all the kinds of rebels that could be executed by the empire, the kinds of threats to the empire that they shake in their boots thinking about. And then, if we are united in being the kind of forces that threaten and undermine empire. We are also united in the resurrection. We are united in the life that persists. We are united in that freedom, that liberation, that life that cannot be squashed. We are united in exposing the empire for its lies. We are pulling back the curtain. We are seeing Oz. We are saying, hey, Thought you killed me. Thought you had the power to do that. Guess not. Now, this isn't like chill or easy, but like that's not Paul. No one's ever accused Paul of being too chill. But Paul's serious about this. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to do the kind of insurrectionist things that get you executed by the state, obviously. We're united in that, right? <laughs> That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about death. Empire threatens and dominates. 
with the cross. God remains present and creates new pathways for life and resurrection. But the path for transformation is about making a choice. Who do we believe? Which life do we choose? Survival under empire or resurrection through death. Now those are terrible choices, I will grant you. <laughs> but these are the choices we have. And Paul almost revels in it. In 1 Corinthians, he goes on this whole like beautiful soliloquy about how the, what the world calls foolish is God's wisdom. And he says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? This is, this is Jesus' teachings at his best when he's sort of like, oh yeah, you know that, uh, that guy who was so rich that he didn't even have anywhere left to put all of his riches, so he just like built another thing to put his riches in? Then he died. <laughs> that's Jesus making foolish the wisdom of the world, right? Like that's Jesus making fun of what the world thinks is going to bring security, what the world thinks saves. The world thinks that greed and accumulation saves. The world thinks that compliance and obedience to authority saves. The world thinks that pleasing the empire and Caesar and not causing a problem is what saves. But Jesus laughs at that. Jesus cracks jokes at that. Jesus flies in the face of that. And Paul says, oh yeah, anybody who's with Jesus, we laugh at death. We go right through death because we know on the other side is resurrection. Now this is not an easy path to have died to the world. Because what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, is like steer in. The things that empire threatens you with, that's your red flag that something important is there. And so maybe don't comply. Instead of trying to survive under empire, we got to be looking for the ways that empire says will kill us. We have to do exactly what the empire threatens us with. Because on the other side of that is resurrection. Now some of y'all know I spent some time in federal prison. Another big looming threat over a lot of people, disproportionately black and brown people, is that they will be incarcerated. Another way to force compliance in a world of authoritarian rule, right? At every, in every empire throughout history. And this is why Jesus says that part of following him, part of building the kingdom, is releasing the captives. Because Jesus knows that's a critical and foundational threat of empire, is to keep people in captivity, to imprison them. I was imprisoned... Um, as a response to some of the international peace activism I was doing. Technically, my charge was criminal trespass on a military base. I got two months in federal prison. But I didn't get arrested alone. And I didn't get arrested on accident. This was part of a coordinated effort to undermine a military school involved and implicated in heinous war crimes around the world. And one of the people that I got arrested alongside when I was 21 was an older Episcopal priest named Father Luis Barrios. And Father Luis had a lot of stories. I asked him how many times he had been arrested, because this was my first. 
He told me 81. He had been arrested 81 times. <laughs> he told me the story of his first arrest. He was a child. He was a child growing up in Puerto Rico, and he was Catholic. And he was poor, and he was very dark-skinned. And his priest had sat him down along with some of his friends and said, you know, they're going to threaten you your whole life because you are poor, because you are brown. You are going to be under threat from the authority in this community and space your whole life. And so if you want, you can join me in something very radical that I'm about to do. Now, the police are not going to like it. They will arrest us and probably beat us. But if you choose to do it, it will be on your terms. There's a military base here in Puerto Rico, and we don't want it here. And so we are going to disrupt their operations by trespassing onto the military base. And we're going to hide there. And we're going to hide out until they find us. And it's going to disrupt things. And then they're going to arrest us. And I know that they've been threatening you your whole life. And I know that getting arrested, having your body beaten, sounds like the most terrifying thing that could happen. I know that you have organized your life around trying to avoid that happening. But guess what? It isn't the end of the world that you think it is or that they say it is. And if you free yourself from that fear, you can disrupt these systems that have put us in this position in the first place. And so, Father Luis, little Luis, not yet a father, went with his priest and some other boys. And they hid. They trespassed and they hid on this military base for three days before they were found. And the guards, the, the military police, had been searching the grounds for all that time. And so when they found them, and all their, their operations had been disrupted, and there was a lot of press and media about it, they were very angry. And so Luis was arrested, and he was beaten, and it was terrifying. And then he did it again, and again, and again, 80 more times until I met him in Fort Benning in Georgia. And he was still doing the public work of undermining international violence, of advocating for peace. He was a professor by that point. He is now Dr. Father Luis Barrios. But he is still learning that lesson over and over again, saying, there is only so much you can do to my body. And my spirit gets stronger every time. Every time I fly in the face of that threat of empire and I find more life, more freedom, more liberation in the fight for a different and better world. That was my introduction to civil disobedience. And man, it was radicalizing and terrifying. But freeing himself from the threat of arrest from the threat of violence against his body, allowed Luis Barrios to make a life that he contributed to liberation, to kingdom building, and to love, that he is still doing now. And he is still educating 
and still advocating and still protesting and making an impact on the world. If we are to follow Paul's advice of dying to sin, dying to the empire, doing the very things that empire tells us not to do, we will find resurrection and life and freedom on the other side. But it won't be easy. It's a difficult task. But for so many of us, it's somewhat unavoidable. And this is the message that Luis's priest was trying to communicate to him, right? You don't have the privilege. You don't have the positionality. You don't have the skin color or the bank account to just coast in this system. This system is going to punish you left, right, and center. So you can either try and mitigate that as much as possible. Try and make yourself as small as possible. Try and comply as much as you can to survive. Or you can make yourself a problem. You can make yourself big. You can make yourself the grain of sand that stops the whole mechanics of the empire. And we need to pay attention to what it is that the empire calls death, that the empire calls a curse. What are they threatening us with? Whatever they threaten us with is what they're most threatened by. So, are the people in power trying to legislate and control the bodies of women and gender minorities? Are they trying to imprison black and brown people? Are they trying to deny access to people with disabilities? Why? Well, maybe it's because disabled folks threaten an ableist empire. Maybe it's because women in control of their bodies can bring down a patriarchal empire. Maybe it's because gender minorities in control of their bodies and their expression and their spirituality can bring down a binary gender essentialist empire. Maybe it's because black and brown people can bring down a white supremacist empire. And so instead of making ourselves smaller, instead of making ourselves compliant, what if we made ourselves huge? What if we made ourselves known? What if we stare down that cross and we say, I know there's life on the other side, and on this side there is only more death? How, by running straight into what they call death, can we find the liberating love of Jesus Christ? He showed us the way, right? He didn't flinch. He didn't turn away. He didn't stop preaching love. He didn't stop preaching access. He didn't stop undermining patriarchy and authority. He didn't stop calling out the empire, even though they said, we'll kill you for it. He was like, I know. Talk to me in three days. <laughs> we go in. And we go in together, and we are united in that kind of death, which unites us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that kind of freedom, that kind of freedom is so beyond anything that compliance and empire can promise us. So what are they mad about now? Well, right now, transness and queerness is, is a real big flashing threat to the empire. But you might wonder, why? What's it to them? There are so few trans people. Like, it's so easy to just, like, let people be people. Well, think about it. What does transness threaten in the empire? What if we all just stop complying with our gender roles? 
That's the question conservatives are asking, all in a tizzy. And liberals are like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not trying to upend gender hierarchy and patriarchy. We just want this one little thing. And then the radicals are like, yeah, man. Let's throw it all out. We've got something better. This is what's really fascinating. A lot of the conservatives actually have a better grip than the liberals do on what the project is. In 2003, Justice Antonin Scalia got real mad about an overturned sodomy law in Texas. And he said, you know, like, if, if the government doesn't take on the responsibility of, like, enforcing this kind of morality, then what is the possible reason that we could have for denying the rights of marriage to gay people? Now, he's not a fan. Don't get confused. He did not want that at all, right? And the liberals on the court were like, no, 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 no. And all the radicals were like, yeah. We see where this is going. And actually, those most committed to empire see where it's going too, and they're scared. But we got people trying to fight towards that middle to say, like, well, we just want this little thing. We just want this little thing. And making all kinds of concessions along the way. Does anybody remember in marriage equality and the fight for marriage equality when some of the major organizations really threw trans people under the bus? Because, again, conservatives were like, oh, we let gay people get married. What about, what about trans people? Next, you're going to want rights for trans people. And a lot of the gay marriage advocates who were cisgender said like, oh, no, no, we would never ask for that. Those people, no, no, they're weird. And like, wh why, right? Because so many of us are tempted. So many of us are tempted to follow that empire script to only get what's ours, to abandon one another, to only see the, the part of the project that benefits us rather than seeing the whole kingdom that we are fighting for and the ways that every victory helps us build the kingdom. Every victory towards liberation of any people builds us toward the liberation of all. And that's what the empire actually is deeply attuned to. That's why they're like, oh, if you're just like able to identify as whatever gender you are, then we have so much less power to control you and to tell you what you're allowed to do. We, do we, let's not do that. I would really like to tell you what to do. And so they start accusing queer people of like turning kids queer, right? Oh, you're just gonna queer up all of those children. We gotta keep you away from the kids. And good, thoughtful liberals are like, It's not contagious, which is true. We, you can't like turn someone gay, which is true. But you know what you can do? You can create a world in which queer and trans children recognize themselves and identify themselves and are seen and celebrated. We can't turn people queer or turn people trans but we can create a world in which queer and trans people are not in the closet. And that's what they're afraid of. That's what they're afraid of. 
that kids are going to see the possibility of a world of freedom and liberation and want it. So why are they getting all bent out of shape about curriculum in schools? Why are they so worried about drag shows for kids? Why are they so worried about health care, not for adults, but for children? Because they don't want kids growing up with an imagination of liberation that could help them fight for the next victory. They don't want that. They want people to just survive. They want people to get quietly back in the closet. They want people to think only about themselves. Now, I got to tell you, when I first went to seminary and first wanted to be a church planter and wanted to, to be involved in leading spiritual community, I had some people be like, awesome, and also like, why? Like, this is amazing, but like, you know that it's like really hard to do that, right? There's like a lot of people who are going to give you a really hard time, and you know, like, are you really up for this fight? And I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. And it took me a lot of digging to, to kind of realize where that hubris came from in me. And a huge factor was that when I was a kid, one of my godmothers was a queer pastor. Now, I didn't really even know her. I couldn't picture her. I have two godmothers, one still very active in my life, another I don't actually know. But I grew up, I grew up with children's books signed with love from Sharon and Karen. Two queer women in love and doing ministry together. And you know what? I didn't even have to know them. I wish that, the, that our life paths had intersected differently and that I could have known them more, but I didn't have to, to know that queer people could be called by God to lead the church. And that was planted in my imagination as soon as I could turn the pages in my board books. And I saw those names, and I took that inheritance. And when I felt the call of God on my life to lead in spiritual community, of course I felt like that was an option for me. So thou is possible in some small way, because when I was a child, I had just that one example of a queer faith leader that made me think, like, well, of course. Like, who could tell me that that wouldn't be on the table for me? And so, when, when governments, when empire, when agents of oppression and control are trying to, to limit the messages of what's possible to children, they're trying to narrow the possibilities of liberation in imaginations. They want to erase queerness. They want to erase transness. They want to erase black history. They want to erase the histories of rebellion and liberation so that kids grow up not knowing what victories have already been won, not knowing what's possible for them, not knowing what the next thing in the kingdom is, what the next brick to lay down in building that free world. So, instead of demurring to the empire and saying, well, of course we don't want to over-sexualize children. Let's like not talk. We'll talk about it in middle school or high school, right? Instead of conceding to them the things that feel so reasonable, just so we can just, you know, we're not trying to be unreasonable here. We need to steer in 
We need to steer into the things that threaten the empire most. Let us dedicate ourselves to the education of children. Let us dedicate ourselves to a world of liberation, not just for us, but for all and for future generations. Let us not settle for overturning one law, one obscure law in Texas, but saying, yes, this is on the path to marriage equality. And yes, marriage equality is on the path to, to trans rights. And yes, all of this is on the path to, to the liberation of all people, to the freedom of the ca from captivity, to abolition. Let us not worry about feeling unreasonable to the empire, because the empire's promise of what helps us survive is a lie. That actually is, in fact, the way of death. Let us not let the empire set the terms of engagement. Let us definitely not let the empire set the terms of imagination. How many of us are unlearning what we were taught when we were young? How many of us are trying to relearn? How many of us are called to start that learning of liberation and love and freedom and authenticity and belonging and give that to young people and to children now? Today, after service, we're having a little meeting of people interested in joining the Sunday School program. Here at Dow, we have a history of creating space to, yes, liberate the minds and imaginations of young people, to encounter the scriptures from an understanding of Jesus as a brown-skinned, radical, revolutionary peasant, understanding salvation as not just something they have to wait and die for, but salvation as the kind of life they can have here and now that brings them into eternity with the communion of saints by experiencing love and life and belonging. Do you want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of building a world where the liberation we have now is a hint of what's to come, where we build that kind of momentum, where we don't settle for crumbs. We are called to be united, not only in that death on the cross, but in the resurrection. So where and how can we follow those little red flags from empire through those threats of death right into resurrecting life? We can be fully alive. We can be among the living. And we can set the imaginative terms for the future. That is what it means to go from death to life in the words of Paul. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, it is so easy to feel so small in the face of empire. But let us not be made small. God, it is so powerful to be made big in your love, in your sight, held up in our communities. May we take up space. May we rally for freedom. May we cry out who you have created us to be in ways that make the empire shake and tremble. And may we not cringe in the face of death, but move confidently through it, knowing that your resurrection and your life accompany us every step of the way. May we find that eternal life, that liberating love, here, now, and in every moment. Amen.